You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 107. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I bring you a portion of my fiction and an update on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. As I mentioned in episode 102, I'm currently working on finishing the fifth Metamore City book, The Lost and the Least. I don't want to start podcasting the book yet, though, because I want my beta readers to have a chance to look at it first and catch any mistakes. So for now, I'm re-recording and re-releasing the stories from the Urban Legends story collection. This year is the 10th anniversary of the start of the Metamore City podcast, so it feels like a good time to look back at these foundational stories. This also means I'll be able to release Urban Legends as an audiobook, once I have professional-quality recordings of all the stories. This week I'm bringing you the first part of Welcome to the City. This story first aired in Episode 1 of the Metamore City podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the City A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Laster Part 1 September 23rd, 1999, Christos Reckoning Precinct 9 Headquarters, Central Division, MCPD Michael? Um, yes? The captain will see you now. Michael Pirelli rose from his chair in the reception area and nervously straightened his tie for about the eleventh time. Okay, thanks, he said, forcing himself to smile at the receptionist. She gave him a smile in return that seemed much more genuine, and more than a little amused. Right this way, she said, beckoning him into an open doorway. They went down the hall and around the corner, stopping at a door that was made mostly of frosted glass. The lettering on it read, Captain Joseph G. Montgomery. The receptionist knocked on the door and then opened it. Michael Pirelli, boss. Send him in, Marcy, a gruff voice replied from within. Brushing a strand of dishwater blonde hair out of his eyes, Michael steeled himself and walked inside. Sitting at the desk was a large wolverine, dressed in the uniform of a police captain. Well, that wasn't precisely true. The person behind the desk was clearly a humanoid. He sat with a human's posture, though the plush leather chair looked almost too small for him. His muscular arms ended in hands with four fingers and a thumb, each of them tipped by a wickedly sharp-looking claw. His eyes glinted with human intelligence, and he nodded to Michael and rose to his feet as the younger man came inside. Michael fought down the instinct to run and walked purposefully into the room, putting one trembling foot in front of the other. This isn't a monster, he told himself firmly. He's just your new boss. On further reflection, he wondered if maybe that wasn't the best way to encourage himself. The captain looked... Well, he looked grizzled, which made sense given his form, but also tall, broad, and heavily built. 
Michael knew the captain was in his early fifties, but just looking at him he would have found it impossible to guess his age. He extended a black-furred hand, and Michael tried not to stare at those claws. Welcome to Metamore City, Michael, the captain said. Michael took the proffered hand and shook it, nearly wincing as the captain squeezed his hand in return. The man had a grip like a vice. Thank you, sir. It's... it's good to be here. That's what I like to hear. The captain bared a mouthful of glistening teeth, and it sent a fresh wave of terror through Michael until he realized that the man was smiling. Just calm down, he told himself. It's not a big deal, it's just the curse. You've seen it a thousand times before on television. This isn't any different, I'm just here now, is all. If the captain noticed his discomfort, he gave no sign of it. Go ahead, have a seat, he said, gesturing to one of the chairs in front of the desk. How's was your flight. Michael shrugged uneasily. All right, I guess. Long, actually. He smiled, and for the first time today it felt genuine though the view as we made our way into the city was worth it. She's the hell of a town, isn't she? The captain agreed. He grinned again, but this time Michael was prepared for it, and the sight didn't shock him as much. No place like it on earth. No, sir. Between the citadel and all those floating skyways, it's just, well, beautiful. The wolverine chuckled. It looks that way from up above, that's for sure. Stick around here, though, and you'll see the other side of things, I guarantee you. Metamore may look pretty on top, but she's got a dark and dirty underbelly, just like any other city in the world. And that's why we're here. He raised his eyebrows slightly. That's why you're here, too, I should think. Unless someone neglected to tell you what homicide detective means when you applied for the job. Michael chuckled a little bit, feeling the tension begin to go out of his shoulders. No, sir. I'm pretty sure I know what I'm getting into. We'll see about that. Captain Montgomery pulled out Michael's file and opened it up. He looked down at the papers, muttered something under his breath, then pulled out a pair of glasses and perched them on the end of his muzzle. The effect was ludicrous, and Michael thought that it instantly made the captain seem less frightening. Now, you come to us from outside the curse's area of effect, is that right? The captain asked. Michael nodded. Yes, sir. Ever been in cursed territory before? No, sir. Mm-hmm. Montgomery looked at Michael over his spectacles. Has anyone explained to you how this works? Yes, sir. I need to get a suppression amulet from the Bureau of Magic Regulation within four days, or I'm at risk that the curse will affect me. Make it three days, Montgomery said. Magic's on the upswing, Michael. The curse gets stronger every year, moves a little further out. Time was, it just affected the valley itself, but now it covers a few hundred miles in any direction. It's best not to take any chances. The last thing I need is my new homicide officer turning into a toddler when I'm not looking. Michael shuddered at the thought of that. Yes, sir. I'll take care of it first thing tomorrow. Good man. Oh, and one piece of advice. Go ahead and splurge for the subdermal charm. It'll send you back a ways, but believe me, it's worth it. The basic amulets are too damned easy to lose, and some of the street rats think it's funny to steal them from cops. Even if you think you might decide to take the curse yourself, it'll take weeks for your paperwork to go through. It's not worth the risk that you'll lose your amulet early and end up with a change you don't want. I'll keep that in mind, sir. 
Privately, Michael couldn't imagine ever taking the curse, but it would have been rude to say that in front of the captain. Glad to hear it. Now, let's take care of this paperwork, and then we can get down to showing you just how deep in it you really are. After putting Michael's papers in order, Captain Montgomery led him down to another part of the precinct house, pointing out the break room and the restrooms along the way. They came to a stop at another frosted glass door, labeled Magic Affairs Section. None of the folks in Homicide are here at the moment, but I've got the next best thing for you, the captain explained, knocking twice and then opening the door. The room was relatively small, with two desks, one window, and a bunch of file cabinets. A framed photograph of the Metamore Citadel hung on one wall. One of the desks was unoccupied, but behind the other sat a very tall, attractive woman, late twenties, with auburn hair that fell around her shoulders, and a fair complexion that leaned more toward gold than pink. She was typing away at her computer, but as they entered she looked up and gave them a lopsided grin. "'Hey, Cap, how you doing?' she said warmly, her green eyes sparkling. She nodded toward Michael. "'Is this our new boy in Homicide?' "'This is,' Montgomery confirmed." Kate, Corporal Michael Pirelli. Michael, this is Lieutenant Catherine Catane, Detective Magic Affairs. Pleased to meet you, ma'am, Michael said, stepping forward and putting out his hand. The woman rose from her seat and gave the hand one firm shake. Even in flats, she was a centimeter or two taller than Michael, and her grip was almost as tight as the captain's. Back at you, she said, nodding. What can I do for you, Cap? Marcy tells me that David isn't coming in today. Yeah, he came down with something nasty over the weekend. He's hoping to be back tomorrow, though. Good. In the meantime, I need someone to show Michael the ropes, and everyone in Homicide is out on call or otherwise occupied. Kate smirked, but her eyes didn't look amused. That's life in the big city for you, she said grimly. Think you can handle it for me? Montgomery asked. Show Michael here just what he's getting into? Kate looked back at Michael, scanning him up and down, and then smiled. Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Good. The captain turned to Michael. Kate was with Homicide for about four years, so she should be able to answer all your questions. Except for any questions about the Homicide initiation ceremony, Kate added. I'm sworn to secrecy. Michael grinned. I'm sure I'll find out about that soon enough. Come back to my office at 4.30 and we'll take you to dinner tonight. Montgomery said. Until then, I leave you in Kate's capable hands. He turned to go, then stopped and looked back. Oh, and Kate? Go easy on him, all right? Kate folded her hands in front of her chest and smiled angelically. Who, me? She grinned. The captain smirked, then shook his head and walked out. What did he mean by that? Michael asked. Kate just turned and gave him the same innocent look. Oh, right. This is one of those things I'm going to have to figure out on my own. The detective gave him a quick pat on the shoulder. You catch on quick, kid. Come on, I'll show you around. So, what's your deal? Kate asked as they walked through the halls of the precinct house. My deal? Michael asked. Yeah, you know. Shapeshifting, magic, sigh, that sort of thing. Oh, I can't do any of that, Michael said, feeling a little self-conscious. 
Really? Huh. How about plain touched? Any fae or fiend or celestial in your family tree? Not that I'm aware of. Hmm. Kate looked at him carefully. Well, you're too cute to have any lutin in you. What about elf? Any elf blood? Er, no. Michael felt his face flush a little at her offhand compliment. Wow. Kate shook her head and continued walking down the hallway. It took Michael a few seconds to realize she'd moved on. Wait, what? Michael asked, rushing to catch up. Nothing. I'm just a little surprised you're a total Monday. No offense. Monday? Mundane. Plain vanilla human, no extra features. That's rare. It is in this town. This close to the ground, anyway. She gestured at the ceiling. Most of the Mundies live one or two levels up. Down here, near the street, most folks gotta have a little something extra to really make it. She grinned and chucked him lightly on the shoulder. Guess you must be as good as they say you are, if you made the cut without any special bonuses. I do have a knack for putting things together, Michael admitted. When I'm studying a crime scene, it's like I can see everything that happened playing out in my head. Other folks seem to have more trouble with it, but for me? Well, it just makes sense. Oh, that's a pretty special feature in itself, Kate said, especially in this line of work. She cocked her head at him appraisingly. I always thought mundane wasn't quite the right word for you folks. Everybody's special in some way. I guess so. Michael paused as a thought suddenly occurred to him. So what's your deal? If you're not a mundane, what's your bonus feature? Oh, no. You're going to have to guess that one for yourself. She winked at him. Don't worry, though. I'm sure you'll figure it out by the end of the day. As they walked on, Michael couldn't help feeling a little worried at that. Kate quickly led Michael on a tour of the facilities, pointing out the offices for the various sections, the jail, the interrogation rooms, and the dispatch office. Finally, she led him down a set of dimly lit stairs into the basement, pointing out the records room in passing, and then stopping at a large steel door. And now here's my favorite part of the tour, Kate said, pulling the door open. Welcome to the morgue. It was pretty similar to the morgue at the county hospital back home, except for the size. This one was clearly designed for a much larger capacity. Stainless steel tables filled most of the floor space, and refrigerated storage units lined the walls. One of the tables had something lying on it, presumably a body, covered by a white sheet. Michael frowned as another thought struck him. Why isn't the morgue at a hospital? That would be the big building next door, Kate pointed out. The hospital and the precinct house are part of the same complex. This basement is actually about twelve stories up from the street, and both of them are sitting on top of the same warehouse. It's all pretty efficient this way. And with the number of bodies that come through here every week, that's a good thing. As they stepped inside, Michael noticed a set of three windows on the left wall. There were mini blinds on the other side of the windows, and the warm glow behind them indicated that the lights were on in the other room. After a moment, Michael realized he could hear someone whistling. He didn't recognize the tune, but it sounded rather cheery. Someone's here, he said. Come on, I'll introduce you. There were three doors along the left side of the morgue. The first one led to the medical examiner's office, the room with the windows, but it was currently unoccupied. The next room was a laboratory, 
with microscopes, a ventilated hood, shelves full of chemical equipment and glassware and other forensic essentials. Inside, a woman with a white lab coat sat in front of one of the microscopes, making an entry into a notebook. Hey, Morgan. You're up early, Kate said. Late, actually, the other woman said dryly, looking up at them. She was stunningly beautiful, with long, jet-black hair, dark eyes, and porcelain-white skin. That fellow out on the table turned up a few hours ago at an unlicensed brothel on 128th. They thought he might be connected to the Vikel case, so they wanted me to check him out right away. Anything interesting? Kate asked. Most definitely. There were some hairs in the stomach and duodenum. I need some samples to compare to, but I'm fairly sure they're feline. Bastard, Kate observed. Agreed. The medical examiner looked over at Michael, and he suddenly felt his body go rigid. Those eyes. Dark, mysterious, almost hypnotic. The woman's lips rose into a suggestive smile. So, who's your new friend, Kate? She asked slowly, not taking her eyes off of Michael. I didn't think younger men were your type, though I can't fault your tastes in this case. This is Michael Pirelli, the new kid in Homicide, Kate explained, ignoring the other woman's innuendo. The captain asked me to show him around. Morgan raised an eyebrow. Fresh blood, eh? How delightful. She beckoned to him, and Michael numbly walked forward, scarcely noticing anything but her eyes, until at last he stood directly before her. She extended a hand toward him, palm downward, which he clasped without thinking about it. My name is Morgan Drowling, she said. Her voice was as sweet as birdsong, yet rich and sultry, and it seemed to echo in his mind as she spoke. I'm the head medical examiner for this precinct. I'm sure that we'll be working together very closely. Reaching up with her free hand, she traced one finger lightly down the side of his face. Her touch felt electric against his blushing skin. Would you like that, Michael? I... I... Oh, God, yes, Michael murmured, entranced. Now, oh, for heaven's sake, Morgan, go easy on the kid. Kate said, sounding exasperated. It's his first day for crying out loud. Rolling her eyes, Morgan released Michael's hand. Oh, all right. Spoil sport. As soon as she broke eye contact, Michael's body lurched, and then he was in full command of his senses again. Looking down at Morgan, and realizing immediately that he could see down her blouse, he quickly backed away and returned to Kate's side staring at the floor and blushing even more fiercely than before. I'm trying to protect you from yourself, girl, Kate said. How long has it been since you've eaten, anyway? About ten hours, and that was just a snack from the refrigerator, Morgan said, doing a good impression of forlorn. They called me back here before I could find dinner. Kate scoffed, shaking her head. <laughs> Jeez, Morgan. Are we going to have to put a warning sign on the door every time you miss a meal? The other woman smiled. Where would be the fun in that? Oh, for... Just eat something, okay? I was planning on it. From the fridge, I mean. Or order delivery or something. Jeez. Kate turned back to Michael. Sorry about that. Anyway, that's Morgan. 
She'll be your best friend every time a body turns up, so be nice to her. Michael looked up at the detective, eyes wide. Nice? he asked, carefully. Kate rolled her eyes. In the normal, courtesy-type sense. You know, treat her like a human being. You'd be surprised how many cops don't do that. Though other senses of the word nice are appreciated too, Morgan added. That's between the two of you, Kate said. Just not on duty, okay? And I'd suggest that you avoid making eye contact with her until you make up your mind for yourself. Wordlessly, Michael nodded. Come on, I'll take you out and show you the neighborhood. Kate ushered him out of the room. As they reached the door, she stopped and looked back. Say, Morgan, are we still on for Friday night? Her demeanor had taken an abrupt turn from stern to chummy. You bet, Morgan said, smiling broadly. I called Cal yesterday, and he said Joss is really looking forward to meeting you. Oh, and wait until you see my new dress. It's to die for. Kate winced and rested her head against the doorframe. Ouch, she groaned. Thank you. You're going to have a great time, Kate. I guarantee it. All right, I trust you. Kate turned to leave, then stopped again and looked back. But can you at least tell me if they have horns or something this time? Morgan laughed, wagging a finger at her. Uh-uh-uh, I can't go spoiling the surprise. You'll just have to wait and see. Kate made something like a soft whimpering noise and then walked out of the morgue. Michael followed close behind, not daring to look back again at the dark-haired beauty behind him. What was that all about? Michael asked once they were out of earshot. Huh? Oh, just a little double date Morgan's putting together for us. A blind date, in my case. She likes to surprise me with men she thinks are... interesting. So, you're friends? Kate smiled. Yeah, we're friends. She paused. She drives me crazy sometimes, but we're friends. I think that's true of every friendship, though. But she's... she's not a Mundy, is she? It was more a statement than a question. Nope, Kate agreed. Not anymore, she added under her breath. What is she? Kate threw him a look that was half expectant and half incredulous. Come on, Michael. You're supposed to be good at putting things together. You tell me. Michael thought about it, running the encounter over in his mind. He'd only caught maybe half of what had passed between the two women, but those eyes... And something Kate had said about Morgan not having eaten. It clicked. Oh, God. She's a vampire, isn't she? Kate snorted and nodded once. And the rookie picks up a spare. So why is she working for the police? The cops back home always used to say that the vamps ran the mob in the big cities. That's true, but not all vamps are created equal. Morgan was working here for two years before she was brought across. That's a long story in itself, but the punchline is that her sire got dusted after she managed to tip us off to what had happened. She's a free agent now. The only one who could control her is the vampire queen herself, and we're pretty sure she's not even aware that Morgan exists. Naturally, we want to keep it that way. Naturally. Still, I'm surprised they let her keep working here. The brass didn't want to, Kate admitted, but David and I and a few others fought hard to keep her here. There's nobody who can read a body like Morgan. The stuff she does, 
well, let's just say that she's pulled convictions out of what I thought were dead-end cases. And to think that somebody wanted to throw away that kind of talent just because she's dead now? That's just stupid. She shrugged. Of course, she can't exactly come to the Sunday afternoon luncheons anymore, but hey. Michael chuckled. Yeah, I can see where it would complicate some things. He frowned. But can they really get blood delivered around here? Like, in 30 minutes so the next pint is free? Kate laughed. You'd be surprised at the things you can get in this city. And that's where we're going to stop for today, folks. Looking back on it, I hadn't realized how long this first story actually was. It tops out at about 8,400 words. I'll bring in the second half of the story in next week's episode. Samuel Johnson said, Quotation is the highest compliment you can pay an author. So, you're welcome, Sam. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 1,409 words this week, over the course of 2.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 564 words per hour. I wrote on 3 out of 7 days this week. Obviously, this wasn't a good week for writing. I'm playing piano for my church service this Sunday, and the songs we were doing required a lot of practice. Between that and an unusually busy schedule at work, I didn't get as much time to sit down with my fiction as I wanted to. I'm continuing to chip away at Chapter 53 of The Lost in the Least. I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm going to end up throwing out most of what I've written since I came back from Balticon. I'm not doing it yet, because I'm still in the thick of the story, and I know I can't be objective right now. But in the moment, it feels like the pace is dragging. This is partly because I was away from writing for all of May, and before that I hadn't really worked on The Lost in the Least since the end of February. It's taking a long time to find my rhythm again, and that's extremely frustrating. But the only way out is through, so I just have to keep pushing forward. And now, the feedback. I got a letter this week from Sarah of Cedar Park, Texas. She writes, Hello, Chris. I've listened to your podcast for the last few weeks, starting at the beginning. Fortunately, I have a job that allows me to listen to whatever I want through earbuds, as long as I get my work done. I've always had a hard time finding books slash stories to listen to. I use LibriVox in my local library a lot, but oftentimes I'll run into a reader that will put me to sleep, even if the story slash book that's being read is interesting. Some time ago, LibriVox started adding complete podcast books. This is what led me to start looking for other podcasts, with mixed results. I prefer using audiobooks, because as a person affected by Section 504, I have a very difficult time with normal written text. There are so many stories out there that I want to hear, but most are not available to me without great cost. Though I can read normal text, it takes me a very long time to decipher, and because of this, comprehension generally gets lost. So taking a normal textbook out of the library is almost out of the question for me, as I almost never get to finish reading it before it becomes due for the fifth time. So, thank you for being a very good reader. Sarah. Thank you very much, Sarah. I know there are a lot of people out there who have trouble with reading print books, whether it's because of focus issues, or processing difficulties, or dyslexia, or just lack of time. 
I know audiobooks have made a huge difference in how many stories I get to consume, and it makes me very happy to know that my works are adding to the amount of good audio fiction available in the world. Thanks for writing in. Andrew MacArthur sent me this question about the curse of Metamore. He says, How does the Metamore City curse target those within its effects? Is it one body, one curse? In making the cut, two thralls belonging to Miriam Bakhtavar, Peter, and Sarah have merged together into one group mind. If multiple people whose consciousnesses had merged together then took the curse, would each body have the possibility of having their own curse? Or is it one mind or soul or spirit, one curse? Yes, these are different things, but I'm generalizing here. In Things Unseen, Sefi, Kate, and others hold multiple spirits within their bodies. If a body which had multiple spirits or souls or minds inside of it took the curse, would it have the possibility of receiving multiple curses? Unquote. Hi, Andrew. The curse specifically targets the body, not the soul. In the examples you cite, Peter and Sarah would be affected by the curse separately, even though they're in a permanent gestalt, and that means they could get different versions of the curse. Daniel and Danny, on the other hand, were affected by the curse only once, even though they have two souls in the same body. The spirits carried by Sephi and Kate in Things Unseen are no longer human, so they wouldn't be affected by the curse at all. Andrew continues, Also, what Metamore Keep stories do you consider canon for Metamore City? In trying to research this a little, I came across a story called Malvoisin by Wanderer that talked about the curses being focused on three different gates within Metamore Keep, and depending on which gate the citizens were nearest determined which curse they received. In some cases, citizens received multiple curses where the area of effect of the curses overlapped. Do citizens in Metamore City have the possibility of receiving multiple curses if they're in certain parts of the city? Unquote. Wanderer was a writing buddy of mine back in the day, and after Copernicus came out with the original Metamore Keep story, Wand wanted to write a flashback story to show how the Battle of Three Gates might have happened. This was the big battle where Nasaj cast the spells that became the Curse of Metamore. Fun fact, Malvoisin is French for bad neighbor, although I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation, and apologies to any French-speaking people who are listening to this. Anyway, Nasaj was about as bad a neighbor as you could get, so the name was definitely fitting. Wanderer's story has always occupied this sort of half-apocryphal position in the Metamore Keep setting. I really like the story personally, but some of the details of his account are disputed by other Metamore writers. What everybody agrees on, though, is this. Only people who were physically standing in the line of fire when Nasaj and his cronies cast the spells had a chance of being hit by two of them at the same time. Once the spells got tangled up with the counter spell and the magic of the Keep's Nexus, and the personal magic of a dragon named Cerulean, who was trying to redirect the spells to absorb some of their effect, that was when it became the curse. And from that point on, it could only affect a person once, and it would affect them anywhere in Metamore Valley. Since that time, as the ambient magic level has risen, the area of the curse has actually increased to several times the distance that it was originally, so you can now be struck by the curse of Metamore anywhere in a several hundred kilometer radius. For everybody who's been struck by the curse after the original battle, though, you can only sign up for one of the three curse variants. So, choose wisely. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, 
Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 1999 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.